The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. In this episode, we're going to look at the very nature of how we do certain things. For example, do you own anything? My guest thinks you might not for long. But first, as usual, a little bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist with 30 years experience as a commentator in The Guardian, Times, loads of places. Well, I would do 30 years is a long time. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. But I'd rather use my 30 years experience to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to take now. So I came up with the Near Futurist name. Do please have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the show reel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, you're, of course, very welcome. And that's more than enough about me. My guest today is a self-made tech billionaire, founder and CEO of Zura, a billion-dollar technology company providing subscription platforms used by Philips, Volkswagen, and The Economist, as well as being an entrepreneur. He's also the author of last year's best-selling book, Subscribed, Why the Subscription Model Will Be Your Company's Future and What to Do About It. He's on the line from San Francisco. Teen Zuo, welcome to The Near Futurist. Hi, Guy. Glad to be on the show. First of all, perhaps you could uh, tell us a bit about Zora and your own background. Zora is a software as a service company. We service some of the biggest companies in the world. You talked about some of them, you know, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Salesforce.com, Box, Zoom. And what we provide is a software application platform that helps businesses launch, build, and really scale subscription businesses. On a personal level, I have been working and obsessing about subscription-based business models for about 20 years, 10 years here at Zora. But before that, I spent close to 10 years at Salesforce.com. You know, a lot of people know of Salesforce as one of the, the leaders of the software revolution that we call software as a service now or, or, or cloud computing, if you will. But the key to Salesforce is we took this industry called software and we used this new business model called a subscription-based business model where before Software companies would say, look, I will sell you the software. You figure out how to install it, maintain it, back it up. You deal with it all. And we said, you know, let's use this thing called the internet or the cloud to really, you know, eliminate all those things. And so instead of selling a product to a customer, we decided to sell it as a service. And the customer would simply have to pay for as much as they used by the day, by the user, by the month, by the drink, whatever it happened to be, a pay-as-you-go model, which we now call a subscription-based business model. And so what we're seeing today is in all facets of your life, you're probably finding that you're buying less and less stuff, right? You don't really have to buy DVDs or CDs anymore. You just fire up Spotify or Netflix to get the entertainment that you need. A lot of people are saying, I don't even need to buy cars. There's so many of these transportation services, right? Ride sharing services from Uber or Lyft or bike sharing services or scooter sharing services, or even 
to buy airplanes or flights at, uh, on a monthly fee. And, and this is what we call a subscription-based business model, the subscription economy. And we really believe that this is taking a bigger, bigger part of our lives. I've seen this in my own life. Of course, I subscribe to both the services that you just named, uh, Spotify and Netflix. Other services are, of course, available in many other forms from many other companies. And um, my wife and I are considering what we do about our next car and uh, whether we should actually purchase one or whether we should just spend out on hiring one as and when we need it for uh, ecological as well as financial reasons. But the finances look pretty good as well because you don't have to buy a car. But the idea that ownership as a concept is coming to an end, that's a huge shift. What else is this going to affect? And why do you think this is happening? What's behind it? Well, I, you know, we all grow up owning stuff. And in, in many ways, our identity often is, has been locked up in things that we own. But, you know, the younger you get, right, into, into the millennials, into Gen Z, you're finding that they're just not buying things, right? They're, they're not buying cars, they're not buying homes, they're not buying assets because they're, they're looking for experiences. We saw this with software. I mean, the first few years that we're out there at Salesforce.com evangelizing this concept of software as a service, we had a lot of IT departments say, you know, I'm not sure I'm comfortable releasing ownership of the product. But once they start using the service and you realize that subscriptions are not about losing control, subscriptions are actually about giving you freedom. Owning a car comes with burdens. You got to worry about, is the car serviced? Is, is the insurance up to date? Is it filled with gas? And when I get it to the location, do I have to park it? And, and, and what if it gets dinged, right? And so what you really want is not the car. What you really want is to try to get from point A to point B. And so if you can get that through a service, then you're perfectly willing to give up the product ownership because of the freedoms that are associated with leasing that, that burden. And we're starting to see this again in all facets of, of your lives, right? And pretty soon you're going to find, you don't even need to buy a washing machine, right? The washing machine simply is going to be in your house and you can simply pay per load. Now, the reason all this is happening is pretty simple, is every product is waking up, right? Every product is waking up because it's connected to the internet. It's tapped into some, some AI service, if you will, on the internet. You're going to call it Alexa, call it Siri. It doesn't really matter. And they're becoming smart, connected devices. And what you're really using these devices are is a portal to some service that's out there being provided to you. And so if your microwave oven can download recipes from the cloud and every day have you, give you a different recipe, that's a service. That's just a, simply a, an edge device or a, or a portal that, that it's into a broader cooking service. I get that. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a fairly seasoned journalist. We've been writing the internet-connected refrigerator story since uh, the internet started in the 1990s. I still haven't seen that many. Does this mean it's finally going to arrive? Or is this, is this possibly yet another fad that's going to be written about for a while and then not quite happen? I think you're going to see, so if you buy a washing machine today, you're not going to be surprised. It's probably connected to the internet. You could probably control it from your phone. If you buy a coffee machine, guess what? It's connected to the internet. My gardener just put in a sprinkler system that's connected to the internet. He came over and said, hey, I need your Wi-Fi password so that I can adjust the water settings depending on what's going on in the weather. And so this is absolutely all happening. Now, in specific parts, right, the washing machines, it might happen first more in the laundromats or the buildings before it gets into individual homes. But, but you're seeing this happen today. And, and I think the last few years, what's happened is every producer of physical products have said, you know, it's actually not that hard, not that expensive to make my products smart and connect to the internet. And that's what you're seeing happening. And that's why the revolution is happening now. Isn't there a bit of a danger, though? Because you, you also get people saying it's easy, it's not expensive. 
We find that there are reports out there that suggest it's not all that secure. Now, I don't know what people can learn from my washing machine, but if that ends up as a uh, portal onto my home internet, and I've got my finances on there as well, sorry, my home home network, I should say, I haven't got an entire internet in my home, you won't be surprised to hear. It's the old uh, chain is as strong as its weakest link thing, isn't it? I'm not underplaying the changes are required. There's definitely changes in security. There's definitely changes in privacy. I would love to see, you know, the governments and regulatory agencies catch up a little bit on this, right? I think when, when businesses are selling services to businesses, I think there's a peer relationship there where they can sort of work out some of these details. But when is businesses selling things to consumers, the power dynamics of, of that relationship are such that there are room for regulatory agencies to step in. You're seeing this with Facebook and you're seeing this with other organizations today. And, and I think that's good. But I think, I think those things can't be sorted through. I think as a society, as, as a group of folks, right, we, we, we can figure that stuff out. But yes, there has to be evolved, you know, new security capabilities, new privacy capabilities, new rules and regulations uh, to make all this work. But, but I think we're going to work it out. And I tend to be an optimist and, and, and very bullish on the future. A lot of that does make sense. And I suspect these things can be worked out. Although in the UK, of course, we've just got an awful lot of coverage about the emergence of Huawei on our 5G network. So I can also see there is some scope for controversy, but possibly controversies that can be worked through. I can see from a business's point of view that turning people like, say, me into an ongoing revenue stream rather than as a one-off buyer is a great idea. And also there's less scope for user error in terms of software and me messing up my computer completely if everything is on the web somewhere. So I really can't install a dud piece of software that's going to ruin everything or delete a vital system file or something. But mostly it seems that this is turning things into the uh, the business's advantage in that you know I become a revenue stream and I'm paying them for the rest of my life. What else is in the new model for me? Why, why is it going to work for me particularly or for the recipient business? I think the idea, you know, with any few thing, people tend to be, you know, on their guard, right? They tend to look for the edges. But our experience at Salesforce was quite the opposite. Our experience at Salesforce was the recurring revenue stream gave us a huge incentive to make the customer happy. In the old software model, a lot of us came out of the software sector. We sold the product to the customer and that was it. And we kind of moved on and, uh, you know, all sales final and went to look for the other customer. And in this new model, if the customer is paying you over time, and you spend all this energy to, to acquire a customer, then you got to keep them happy because otherwise you're going to cancel the service and all the money that you spent to acquire the customer just be evaporated and disappeared. So as a result, you look at customers that use Salesforce versus the old models. Uh, they tend to be happier. They tend to be happier because they're, you know there's a vendor there looking for, out for you. And so you look at Netflix, right? You can cancel Netflix at any time. So it's incumbent on them to make sure they're providing new content and new things that, that keep you engaged. And so what you find with these subscription services, they're, they're constantly getting refreshed, they're constantly getting better and better, they're constantly evolving because I think the competition and the need to hold on to the customer really creates a much healthier dynamic between the vendor and the customer. I think that makes a lot of sense. So what should people like me and other businesses too do to prepare for all this? I mean, I'm sitting in my, my home office in a home that I own. I'm sitting in front of a computer that I own, talking into a microphone that I actually own. If you're right, this whole dynamic is going to change. How quickly is it going to happen? And what do we all need to do to prepare? Well, this is happening incredibly fast, right? And it's, it's happening all around us. And, and, and who knew a few years ago that we buy less and less cars? I mean, the number of cars sold last year actually dropped worldwide, including places like China, where the economy is going strong. There's lots of new people coming into the middle class. You would expect car sales to go up, but car sales went down. And, and here's the funny thing, miles driven actually went up. And so it's not like we're valuing cars less. We need cars more and more 
but we just don't need to purchase the cars. And so I would say as a consumer, right, in your professional life, in your personal life, and if you don't have to buy a product, consider not buying it. Why tie up all that money in a physical product that's simply going to be obsolete in, in, in six to 12 months? And as a business, I think here's the lesson for businesses. I think the wrong way of going about this is to say, let me take my existing product the way it is and let me get the customer to pay over time. Because you haven't really changed anything, right? All you did was push out cash flow into the future. And if you only do that, that's not necessarily a good thing. What you have to do is you have to start with the customer. And in the early days of Salesforce, software as a service, what we realized was when we can see how our customers were using our product, then we can use that knowledge to create a better service, better than we ever could in the old software model where we couldn't see the product was installed and we couldn't see what the customers were doing. Now you look at all these physical devices and these engineers, these engineers, these, these car engineers, these appliance engineers, you know, million dollar printing presses, million dollar tractors, their products are being lit up, connected to the internet, and they can actually see how their products are being used. And so they're using all that knowledge to strengthen their products, but more importantly, they're using that knowledge to build a direct relationship with their customers to make sure that they're actually hitting the bullseye of what the customer is trying to do. I'm just trying to get from point A to point B. I'm just trying to move from dirt. I'm just trying to run a business on your printing presses, right? I'm just trying to service my patients with the medical scanners. I'm just trying to cook. I'm just trying to do some laundry. And if the company can actually do a better job helping you do that, that company is going to be stronger and it's going to be a winner in this new age of digital disruption. There is also an infrastructure question though, isn't it? Because if you start off at point A, where let's stick with the car example, I do agree there's been a lot of research to suggest that certainly in the UK, which is what I'm familiar with, it may well be the same or similar in the US, that most cars spend 90% of their time not moving, not being used, because everybody's got their own car. That's a bad idea. I take that point completely. But on the other hand, there is a car industry out there, which is therefore arguably producing or overproducing cars by 90%. You can't just posit cutting the car industry by 90%. You know, how, how do we get from A to B? What, what has to happen in terms of those infrastructure issues? Well, at the broader macro level, you're certainly right. We talk to economists that are incredibly excited about the value that, that these subscription services unlock, right? There's, there's, the old product model means so many assets are sitting around. You think about the computing power on your computers, sitting around idle, but if it's in Google's data centers, they are sure to, to maximize every, every use of it. And, and you know, same thing with, with car manufacturers or anything else. And so there is an enormous amount of value that can be unlocked from idle assets moving towards, towards this type of model. And it's a much, a much more efficient use of resources and better for the environment. For the car industry itself and for car companies, let's go back to the statistic. If car sales are going down, and most people believe that this is not a trend that's going to reverse, it's just going to continue. But miles driven is going up. Then if you're a car company, the answer is simple. If your revenue model is tied to miles driven, your revenues are going to go up. If you can translate your, your revenue model so the customers are actually paying for the value that they're getting from these assets, then your revenue is going to go up. But if you don't change and your revenue model is simply tied to car, you know, car sales, unit car sales, then you're in trouble. Your revenues are going to be sliding downwards. So I'm not saying this transformation is easy. There's a lot they have to do to reinvent themselves, but the direction is clear. Tie your revenues to the value that your customers receive and, and you're going to do great. 
And do you see that as a sort of destination or a staging point? I'm wondering if this is ever going to stop evolving and whether perhaps, uh, you know, in 30 years' time, if I'm still doing this job, in which case you'll know that the pension's bombed, but in 30 years' time, if I am still doing this job, talking perhaps to your successors, whether they'll be talking about yet another model, uh, another business model that uh, we haven't thought of yet. We actually think a business model where a customer and a business actually has a relationship and know each other. We think this is the natural state of things, right? You go back two, 300 years, you know, small towns, you know your butcher, you know your baker, you know your blacksmith. These are relationship-driven businesses, repeat businesses. It's built on trust. And I think what's happened is about 125 years ago with the advent of, of mass manufacturing, automation, assembly lines, right, industrialization, we shifted to a focus not on the customer, not on a relationship, but just on the unit, the unit sold. And business schools started churning out managers where they would teach them, look, the goal of business is the way to win, if you will, is to sell as many units as you can. You produce a movie, you sell as many tickets as you can. You produce a car, you sell as many cars as you can. You have as many pens as you can, as many, as many razor blades. And you know, conspicuous consumption, plan obsolescence, right? All these techniques started coming to being. And I say good riddance. I say these things were interesting for the last 100 years. But let's go back to a relationship between a service provider and a customer and the strength and health of that relationship dictates the value that the customer perceives or receives and the strength of the business. And I, we think that's a much, much better model. And we think, you know, we're just returning to something that's, that's normal. Okay, that's talked me through the issues very, very neatly. I'm, I'm sure the listeners will find that very interesting. They may want to know more. Uh, where can listeners find out more about you and about Zora? Well, I'll give you actually two places. If you want to know more about our product and what it does, definitely go to our corporate website, www.zora.com. I will say that we built a brand called Subscribed. And so if you go to www.subscribe.com, there's a whole set of material, events, books. We have a book called Subscribe out there, that bestseller that we were talking about. There's, you know, there's additional blog posts, there's articles or really how to succeed in the subscription economy. Really tapped into from our customers, right? The early adopters that are just seeing great success, great growth in the subscription economy. We try to capture the lessons, we try to put in the book, we try to put in our events, but I encourage you to go to www.subscribe.com and learn how to transform your business today. I will do that. Tian Zhao from Zora, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futures podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back in two weeks' time, as always. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. See you in a fortnight. Music